Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you for his spirit um, that convicts us, that comforts us, that um, tells us all the things that we need to know and, and hear um, when we feel less than. Father, help me now with that same spirit to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Tonight we'll be in Psalm 8. And what I'm going to do is read our text first and then we'll get going. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and, all, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It has been said that the greatest resource on earth is the human being. Humans are easily the most intelligent, creative, and adaptable species there is, bar none. In fact, some folks would go as far and say that not only are we the greatest resource, we are also the most dominant species there is. We have survived throughout history because we have maintained our status at the top of the food chain via evolution. Because of Charles Darwin, this has become modern popular belief. Darwin single-handedly convinced the world that evolution was indeed fact and that humanity has, quote, won the struggle for existence, which makes the kings and the queens of the jungle us. Since his seminal work titled On the Origin of Species, which was published in 1859, scientists, philosophers, anthropologists have all adapted his work, this theory, to fit social and cultural realities. These folks figure that what must be true of nature must also be, also be true of the social dynamics that we live in within a particular species. If, if nature can be dominated by one group, then society can be dominated by one group as well. Enter now social Darwinism. This theory teaches that 
in society, just like in nature, there are those who are simply strong and there are those who are weak. And the fittest will prevail. Again, the premise is the same. Those with the most social resources, in the case of human beings, should see their resources increase at the demise of those who have little or none at all. Now, I don't know about you, but this all seems to smell all too familiar to our present realities in these yet-to-be-United States. The world we currently live in, the world we currently take up residence, seems and tends to operate in this way more often than not. It is a system that tells you and I that the reason you are on this planet is to live a life of comfort and happiness via greed and selfishness while simultaneously acquiring as much monetary and social power as possible, regardless of how it affects your fellow neighbor. Remember, only the best survive, and the best are those with the most resources. Now, these are tough and uncertain times. But, but what is even more discouraging about these times it's how people have responded, God's people. You would think that when things got difficult for all parties involved, there would be more common decency, more mutuality amongst one another, more regard for those who have less. No, instead we get more greed and more selfishness. Folks couldn't, when, when, when COVID hit, folks couldn't even get food and toilet paper because they weren't fast enough to get to the store. Multi-million dollar corporations received federal loans while folks who lost their jobs and lost their businesses still to this day have not gotten money that they so desperately need. Black bodies have been gunned down and killed and folks are debating whether Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the countless others are simply collateral damage because laws were broken. Simply put, the very problem with society is the human being. However, what I want to argue this evening from Psalm 8 is that the solution for society, the solution for yourself, the solution for our city, the solution for our communities, the solution for our fellow neighbor is in fact the human being, you. As we come to Psalm 8, we get a very telling and descriptive picture of humanity at its finest, humanity at its worst. But most and more importantly, humanity as the instrument for renewal. The psalmist begins and ends his poetic song of sorts acknowledging his creator, God. And he does so in a very specific and intimate way. He, he meaning most likely David would have written this song, invokes God's revealed name. Check it out. Don't miss it. Oh, Lord, 
whether it's your physical copy or your phone, notice that Lord is capitalized. All letters of Lord is capitalized. Well, then just two words later, Lord is ca only capitalized with the L. That's significant. Here, here's your pro tip for the evening. Anytime you see L-O-R-D in capital letters, pay attention. What Lord means here is Yahweh. Some of us may have heard that word before. Some of us may have not. That's okay. See, not everyone knew this side of God. It was, it was only known to a special and specific people, the Israelites, his chosen folk, which today would be us, Christians, who call upon the name Jesus. Yet Yahweh is short for I am your God, and you are my people. In other words, the psalmist is setting the record straight. Your existence begins and ends with Yahweh. It's an it's a intimate word. You've got to be in a special relationship with God to know and understand what Yahweh means. You notice David doesn't say that your existence and my existence started with science and ends in oblivion. Those in the original context of this psalm, they too were also living in a hostile context. They too knew what it was like to live in, a nation, in nationwide suffering and unrest. The way people acted in ancient Near East culture was not all that much different from how modern folk act today. What is true of the human heart then is still true of the human heart now. And for whatever reason, we have always attempted through human history to replace God. Whether we do that scientifically, philosophically, or emotionally. And we tend to do it mostly in times of unrest or uncertainty or calamity or suffering. We, we, we have deemed him too inadequate or, or outdated for our current context or our current situation or whatever circumstance we're living in. Oh, but not on my watch, says the psalmist in verses 1 and 9. To understand yourself and why you are here, you must begin with God. See, every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God. See, this carries significant weight when it comes to how we see ourselves in light of God and our neighbor. But because we are made in his image, there are things that we automatically inherit. There are things that are inspected of us, and there are things that have been given to us. The psalmist is arguing in verses 5 and six that, 6 that male and female alike, each of you have been crowned with glory and honor. It doesn't matter what school you went to. It doesn't matter how many zeros you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter what, what hue your skin may be, if it's darker or lighter, whether you're short or tall. To be a human being means to be made in the image of God. You are the crown jewel of creation. 
you really are the apple of God's eye. God was not satisfied with the works of his hands until he created you. Now, friends, let me preach this pastorally, if you will. Although I'm not a pastor, I I think this moment is pretty important. If you have ever thought, felt, or been told you hold no value, or your dignity has been stripped away by another person, a traumatic event, which has led you to believe that you're worthless, my brother and my sister look no further than these two verses right here. See, I know the effects of shame after your abuser has had his or her way. I know what it's like to live in a country that regards you to be inferior because you wear a darker hue than the majority. I know what it feels like to be disregarded historically and systematically through chattel slavery, Jim Crow laws, and mass incarceration, which has deprived folks who are made in the image of God of their divinely given dignity. For you sitting here this evening that struggles daily believing you have worth, look no further. As Paul so eloquently says in Ephesians 2, you in fact really are God's handiwork. You are his masterpiece. There is no person, no force, no system, no narrative, no ideology, whatever, fill in the blank. There is nothing that can take that truth away from you. Little girl, young boy listening, you are loved more than you ever know because of who created you. See, dignity is not found in the world. It, it, it's found in God, and, and without, without it, we, can, we, we can't fully do what we were designed to do. See, dignity is the prerequisite to, to flourishing, if you will. And to be human is to flourish, and it's to see that those around you also have the same opportunity. And what we see here in Psalm 8 is, is a reverberation or, or echoes of eating of where God gives us our intended purpose. This isn't Darwinism. This isn't the latest self-help talk. This isn't the message that your favorite talk show host is telling you to make, you, make yourself feel better. The reason why you were put on this earth is so that you would worship him exclusively and that you would reflect his image in all areas of life. I can't preach it the way I want to, but here's what I will say. No longer do you need to take your cues from what you see on the gram, on Facebook, whatever political pundit you love to listen to, Your purpose has been right up under your nose this whole time. You were created to worship the only and true living God. And by doing so, that allows you to establish his kingdom, his society on earth. That, friends, has always been your purpose. 
I played football in college, and my coach would always tell me, if you do one of two things, you will probably succeed. But the moment you don't do those one or two things, things get really bad. I played quarterback. My objective was to move the football down the field and not turn over the, over the ball, essentially not give the team the ball. When those two things happened, we had a really, really good chance of winning. But at any point where I decided to take matters into my own hands and stepped out of the parameters that were given to me, bad things came to follow. I wasn't flourishing the way I could have been. The same is true of us. There's a reason God created us the way he created us. There's a reason he's called us to do specific things in our own lives and in the world. Because it will, in fact, more than what my football coach can promise, but it will lead to your flourishing. Now, what makes this psalm even more interesting is, is its poetic nature. We have a lot of artists, poets, musicians. Help me out here. Oftentimes, when you read poems, there are typically many literary devices happening all at once. Allegory, uh, alliteration, imagery, so forth, right? So in the case of ours, the psalmist here is utilizing the, the double meaning. In verses 5 through 8, the psalmist is painting a picture of what should be and what will be. See, his audience is getting a history lesson in a PSA announcement all at the same time. But the question that comes to my mind, and maybe yours too, is what about the in-between? What about their current situation? I, I get what we were supposed to do or how we were supposed to be, and I get where we're going, but where does that leave me in the here and now? See, if, if God's people were designed to reflect him in all areas of life originally, and then sometime in the future they knew that the, this Messiah was to come, they expect all things to be right again. Okay, okay, I get it. But, but, but what about now? Why can't they bridge the gap between what was and what is to come? Because they too had this disrupting and annoying thing called pride. They, just like us, struggle with the same stuff you and I struggle with. See, see oftentimes pride or, or sin in the manifestation of pride is often the player that we overlook. It's, it's the elephant in the room that we try to cover up with a towel. It's the coffee stain that won't go away regardless of how many times you try to wash it out and scrub it out. It's just there. Sin is the space between what was and what is to come. It's, it's, a lot, it's forced us, it, it makes us to live a distorted life and, and the imago day within us is just a shadow of what it used to be. Now, don't get me wrong. There are many great things you and I have done. There are many great things folks have done in the world. We're not all horribly, terribly just doing bad things all the time. There are some good things we have to offer. 
But, but that's not necessarily how it's supposed to be. But, okay, that doesn't hit home. Let me, let, me, let me move a little closer to your address. See, according to Psalm 8, the disposition of your desires, your heart, your soul, however you want to categorize it, should always start and end with God, right? But instead, when, when you wake up, the first thing that comes to your mind is you. What am I going to do today? What am I going to eat? Why did my spouse do this or didn't do this? Why are my kids so loud? You scroll through your phone, and then when the day is over, it's the same repeated cycle. The, the, the God of self-centeredness has made you believe that you really are the most important person in the universe. And not only that, those around you should already know that. A second way uh, sin may show up is systematically. See, for 400 plus years, black and brown folks have been disregarded. They have been shamefully beaten. They have been killed. They have been hung on trees. We have lived in the most dilapidated communities and no one bats an eye. The black experience in America has not been one of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Instead, it has been a life of trauma, alienation, and the pursuit of survival. And what is most disheartening of it all is that much of this violence and prejudice has come from those who call themselves Christians. Sin is not just an individual implication. It doesn't just affect you. It has shattered our world. It affects those who are put in positions to uh, inflict power and influence. It is both individual and systemic. And unfortunately, it shows itself in racism and bigotry and the like. When, when redlining laws were established during America's infamous Jim Crow days, the the white powers that be in Lexington described neighborhoods as such. West High Street area, quote, it's a hazardous, detrimental, detrimental influence, influences an undesirable population. These are the folks who are giving out loans for folks to buy houses right here in this city describe that neighborhood in this fashion. Their recommendation is to refuse, refuse to make loans in this area or only on a conservative basis. Limestone area, my zip code, where I live, this is how we are described. Definitely declining infiltrations of lower grade populations. Meanwhile, those who lived in neighborhoods like Chevy Chase they were, quote, unquote, described as best. Make mass, maximum loans, perhaps up to 75% or 80% of appraisal. AKA, give those folks money, don't give those folks money. If you lived in a poor neighborhood, banks were told by the government not to lend regardless of your job or income. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I drive in these described neighborhoods, things have not changed much. I'm sure many of those policymakers and law enforcers showed up to church on Sunday praising God, all the while having no regard for their fellow image bearer. To be made in the image of God comes with great responsibility and stewardship. Humanity was supposed to be the driving force of God's grace to the world, and now in many ways it has become its biggest hindrance. Instead of exclusive worship, we now have inclusive worship. You worship your career, your money, your family, your body. We have replaced God with our little gods of trendy lifestyles, daily routines which lead to anxiety when they're disturbed by life or people. Instead of extending his grace towards your neighbor, we keep it to ourselves or we choose where it ought to go. We're confined to bubbles where folks think like us, talk like us, wear the same clothes as us, eat the same things. Reflecting God's image in Lexington is the church being the church outside of Sunday worship. It's waking up and, 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 and sending your day on Jesus. It's thanking him for yet another opportunity to do what he's called you to, to do what he's designed you for. It's restoring the dignity of a man or a woman who, whose back has been up against the wall her whole life. It's having concern and compassion for communities who keep waking up to news that yet again, a black brother or sister has been killed and, and, and not jumping to conclusions as to why that person died or justifying or asking for facts, but just grieving a dead human, human bearer on the ground. It's asking the question, why is this person dying? See, self-centeredness has robbed us of what it means to be fully human. It's created political and ethnic and economical lines that separate us, but then it degrades those who are at opposite ends of us. We need an alternative message, something that's not of this world, something that the White House can't give us, cancel culture can't give us, federal mandates can't give it to us, Capitalism isn't the answer. Socialism isn't the answer. Throwing more money at problems is not the answer. What you and I need is a never-ending dose of Jesus. The mechanism that binds what should be with what, what, what is to be, what is coming, is Grace. Grace brings you from distortion to perfection. Okay, no, no amens. That's okay. I brought my own witness. The only example I know worth giving is, a, is that of a man who gave up everything for you. The image of God is perfectly clear in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus has demonstrated to the world that what it means to be a reflection of God. And one of the best examples I can give is that when he was tempted by Satan. See, three times Satan twisted God's word 
to attempt to attract Jesus from doing his father's will. He offered him power. He offered him glory. He offered him the whole world. He, he took him up on a cliff and he said, Jesus, you could have it all. You could have this whole thing right here, all yours, all the power you could ever imagine. More than whatever you have now, you can get, get more of it. What does Jesus do? He responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6. You shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. See, then he meets a woman at the well in John 4. And not only was she a Samaritan, a Samarian, see, that was a minority of her day. She was considered a half-breed. There was no place Jews had uh, being in the vicinity of a Samarian and vice versa. But she had a difficult past. She, she had previous husbands and she was shamed for being with men. And although in that time women could not survive without a husband and her dignity was stripped away from her because of her circumstances were out of her control. Jews simply did not associate themselves with those kind of people. But Jesus, being a Jew, by the way, a brown-skinned man, did exactly the opposite. He acknowledged her. He talked with her. He restored her dignity. He reminded her that she was made in the image of God through hospitality and compassion. He didn't point his finger he didn't turn his nose up. He didn't ask why she had five husbands or justify why she was poor because she didn't work hard enough or say you didn't, you, you, you just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps a little harder. Friends, God is not asking you to save yourself from your pride or your obsession with control. In Christ, we are free from those things. Nor is he asking you to be the city's savior or your neighbor's savior or your family member's savior. Only the gospel can do that. What the psalmist is saying is that God is with you. The great I am. The one who, who brought his people from slavery in 400 years in, in Egypt the one who marched them through the Red Sea, the one who defeated Pharaoh, the one that had them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years but provided for them day in and day out. That God, the same one who, who took on the skin and flesh of a human being, stepped into your reality, your existence, your circumstance, and experienced everything that you could ever experience in this world. That God is your God, and he is your, and you are his people. But it's that same God that created you. It's not an a, a anomaly or a mistake or a coincidence that you were made in the likeness and the image of the creator of the heavens and earth. He did so with a purpose. He made you for a reason, which is, which is something different. It's something countercultural to the status quo. 
Only in Jesus can you truly live out what it means to be made in his image. And what a time for the church to be the church. Out of all the things to choose from, Jesus chose weak and fragile people to undergo the most important mission of human history. As Paul says it in Corinthians, his grace is sufficient for you. For his power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of Christ propels you from the, from the bondage of sin. It propels you from the bondage of, of prejudice and bias and self-centeredness. You can't do it. You need something outside of yourself to do what you were truly called to do. To be made in his images, as they say, heavy, heavy is the head that wears the crown. We have been crowned with glory. And yes, it comes with great responsibility. But again, the great I am says, I am with you. I am your God and you are my people. It is the power of Christ in you that empowers you to bring his kingdom to bear in your own life, in your own heart, and also in your own neighborhood. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.